following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, we are going to do something a little bit different this morning. You may notice these four chairs up here. It's not just because I'm tired. Uh, I'm going to try and make use of these. Generally, what happens about this time of the service is that someone like me stands up and opens the Bible, and we take a particular passage from the Bible or a topic related to the Bible or something like that, and we preach from that passage. That's pretty normal, right? That sound familiar to some of you? Yes, hope so. That's what we do every week. Uh, that's called, by the way, that's called expository preaching. That's kind of our, it's sort of our deal here. But I'm not going to do that specifically this morning. What I want to do, instead of talking about a part of the Bible or a verse from the Bible or a story in the Bible, I want to talk about the whole thing. I want to talk about the whole Bible this morning, okay? This whole book. Often what happens when we think about the Bible and we approach the Bible is we just take isolated verses out of the Bible and we just think about it as a whole lot of disconnected verses. And you may have a favorite verse and you might have a memory verse or you might have a verse that was important from your childhood. That's all really good stuff. But what we sometimes lack is a way of putting all the pieces together and thinking about the Bible more holistically. So one of the things that we are really committed to at Shaw and really passionate about is helping people understand the big story of the Bible. If you have been around this church for a while, you will have heard this kind of language, I hope. Uh, we talk about the Bible as God's story. Uh, we talk about the biblical story. We use words like the biblical narrative or the biblical meta-narrative. They all mean pretty much the same thing. That when we talk about the Bible, we're talking about it as God's story. When I say story, I don't mean that it's made up. I don't mean that it's a fairy tale or a fable or a myth that's not true. Some people hear that and they switch off straight away. That's not what I'm talking about. The Bible is a true story. In fact, it is the truest story because it tells us what is true and it shows us what is real about God, about ourselves and about the whole world. But what we're saying when we describe the Bible as a story is that it has this narrative quality to it. So from beginning to end, the Bible is telling one story, even though it's made up of a whole lot of little stories, and yes, it is made up of a whole lot of individual verses, from Genesis to Revelation, there is one golden thread running right through the Bible. And the very best thing that you can do if you want to understand the Bible and if you want to understand the Christian faith is to know that story, and even more, to live in that story. So what I want to do this morning, quite simply, is to tell you that story. That sound all right? I try and do this once every couple of years, and it's been two years. So I figure it's about time. We're going to step back and just hear the story afresh. So I'm going to try and do the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, in about half an hour. Should be doable? Easy enough? Right. Okay, buckle up. It's going to get crazy. If you want to follow along in the Bible, you're going to have to be really fast turning the pages. So the way I'm going to do this, I haven't done it quite like this before. I'm going to use these four chairs, and I'm going to use four words. Okay, this, this uh, is not original with me, by the way. I, I stole this from someone else. But I find this a helpful way of conceptualizing the story, and it may help you to understand the four movements in the biblical story. So these kind of represent four scenes, if you like, or four movements as we go along. So we're going to try this, okay? So the first word, we start right at the beginning, okay? First words of the Bible. Anyone know them? Oh, you guys are great. You don't need me. In the beginning. Now, the first word that this first chair represents is the word ought. 
ought. Funny word. But what it means, what it represents, is that the first two chapters of the Bible, this chair only represents the first two chapters of the Bible, and that tells the story of how the world ought to be. The way that God created the world. How God designed the world to be. How God ordered the world to be. So in the beginning, God created. He created the heavens and the earth, and the first couple of chapters of the Bible tell the story of God uh, separating a whole lot of stuff out. He separates light from darkness. He separates uh, earth from sky. He separates land from sea. And then he fills it. He fills the earth with all of these things. He fills it with animal life. And he fills the earth with plant life. And then as the pinnacle of God's creation, he creates what? Us. I'm going to try and make this a little bit interactive to keep you awake. Okay? So feel free. Just call out. So us. right? He creates human beings. And the story, that is the crescendo of God's creative work, is that we, human beings, enter the picture. God creates male and female. And we are told at the beginning that God creates us in his image. What that means is that just as God is a relational being, Father, Son, and Spirit, we are created for relationship. We are relational beings, hardwired for relationship. We are created for relationship with God primarily and fundamentally. That's the most important relationship, but it's not the only one. We're also created for relationship with one another. And human beings were created for relationship with creation, working with the land, working with the earth. And in the beginning, all of that worked well. It worked as it ought to work. Human beings had this beautiful matrix of relationships. They were in perfect relationship with God. They existed in good, whole, healthy relationship with one another, Adam and Eve. They existed in good, healthy relationship with creation itself, working with the, the earth and the land, working with human beings rather than against it. And God creates these human beings and he creates us to keep on creating. It wasn't just a finished project. God says, go forth and multiply it. He says, fill the earth and subdue it. Care for it. Cultivate it. God gives us work to do. You could think of that first garden that God places human beings in as a beginning point, but not the end point. God wanted human beings to take that, that world that they existed in and take it out through the whole earth. In a sense, what God wanted was, was, was for the whole earth to become like Eden, for the whole earth to become like the Garden of Eden, so for human beings to continue creating and cultivating and, and filling and subduing, creating culture, creating things and flourishing throughout the earth. So this was an ongoing project that God enlisted us in from the beginning. So this is the world as it ought to be, Genesis 1 and 2. Now, it doesn't take long, does it? before the whole thing comes off track. And if you've read much of the Bible, you know you only get to chapter 3, and it starts going downhill real fast. We get to the second stool. And this word is the simple little word, is. Is. And it represents the way the world is. We started with the way it ought to be, God's design, God's plan. But now we have the world the way that it is. And the change comes in Genesis chapter 3. God gives these human beings one commandment. Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, what do they do? They do the one thing they're not supposed to do. But that act, I mean, we think of it as like eating fruit from a tree, and it was, but it was so much more than that. It represented human beings totally trying to upend their relationship with God, totally trying to subvert 
the way that God created these relationships to work. God set our relationships up so that we would depend on Him. So we would look to Him. We would trust Him. We would rely on Him. He would be our authority. He would be our guide. He would be our Lord. We could look to Him for all things. But human beings, when they ate from that tree, what they were really saying is we don't want to depend on God anymore. We want to be independent. We want to be autonomous. We want to make the rules. Thank you very much. It's not that Adam and Eve suddenly became atheists and didn't believe in God anymore. They just wanted to play by their rules. They wanted to do things their way, and they wanted to bring God down to their level and have Him revolve around them rather than their existence revolving around God. They wanted to live an egocentric kind of life rather than a theocentric, God-centered kind of life. And so they turned this relationship upside down. And we call that in Genesis chapter 3, the fall And from there, a whole lot of repercussions happened. It was like throwing a pebble in a pond and seeing all the ripple effects that happened. The first thing that happens is that human relationships with God are fractured. So there is a huge rupture in the relationship we were designed to have between human beings and God. That is fractured in Genesis chapter 3. But that's not all that happens. The next relationship that's damaged is human beings' relationship with themselves. You have the entrance of shame into the biblical story. Adam and Eve realize they are naked and they are ashamed. Shame hadn't been part of the picture before. Now we feel shame. In the very next chapter, you have human relationships starting to break down. In Genesis 4, you have the first murder in the Bible, Cain and Abel. And so now you see this relationship with God that's been severed. Now it starts to affect human relationships. One brother takes the life of another brother. By the time you get to Genesis 5, the Bible says that All human hearts are wicked. The inclination of the human heart is nothing but wickedness all the time. This kind of pervasive evil has spread right throughout the earth. It's a pretty sorry story. You get the picture and the story of Noah's flood. It's a nice story for kids, but it makes a powerful point that God brings about this incredible judgment because the Bible says he had regretted making human beings in the first place. That's how bad it got that quickly. By the time you get to Genesis 11, things have rippled out even more. You have the Tower of Babel story. Human beings building this huge tower, trying to make a name for themselves, essentially to try and be like God. And so God judges. He comes and he scatters these workers and sends them throughout the earth, all speaking different languages. And you you kind of see the way that the Tower of Babel story is the undoing of so much of what was in the beginning where human beings existed in these relationships of love and harmony and peace. And now, with the Tower of Babel, they're scattered. They're they're judged. They can't understand each other anymore. All of these different languages have come between them. And so you're left really at the end of Genesis 11, just scratching your head, wondering how things have gone so badly so fast. After such a great beginning of what ought to be, just a few chapters later, the picture is so bleak, and so bad, and you kind of feel like the story should end right there. There is just absolute hopelessness, just 11 chapters into the story. And that, of course, explains why the world is the way that it is today. You read Genesis 3 through to 11, and it's the story not just of the first human beings, it's the story of all of us, right? We have all been there. We have all done what those first human beings did, trying to upend our relationship with God, live independently, do harm to one another, do harm to God's world, troubled hearts, troubled minds, 
hearts that run a long way from God. Really, those chapters describe what is today, why the world is filled with such brokenness, why our hearts are filled with such brokenness is because of the way things came so badly off track and this thing called sin, our own rebellion against God, enters the picture really early in the story. Honestly, the fact that there is any more to the Bible than those first chapters is just a testimony to God's grace. Really, the story should have ended at about Genesis 3, shouldn't it? Like if God just played by the rules and gave us what was, what was fair and just, he would have wiped us out and the story would have ended right there. The fact that we have the whole rest of the Bible is just an incredible testimony to a God who wasn't willing to do that, who loved and pursued and came to rescue us even when we didn't deserve it. Let me carry on with is, though, because we're still on this chair. And this is quite a long chair. It's not just those first few chapters of the Bible. You turn the corner to Genesis 12, and there is a real note of hope that comes into the story. Genesis 12 is the appearance of, anyone know who? Which character in the Bible? Abraham. Yes. Abraham comes along in Genesis 12. He kind of comes out of nowhere. He has no particular pedigree. He's not a person of any notoriety. But God appears to Abraham one night, cloudless night, lots of stars in the sky. And he says, Abraham, or Abram as he was then, I'm going to bless you. God makes these amazing promises to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky. And through you, Abraham, through you and Sarah, all peoples of the earth, all nations of the earth will be blessed. This extraordinary promise that sits there in Genesis 12, that through this family, through the Abraham and Sarah family, all nations, all peoples would eventually be blessed. That passage in Genesis 12 is incredibly important for the whole story. We often bypass it, but you could see the rest of the Bible being the fulfillment of those promises made to Abraham that night under the stars, that through this family, God's blessing will come to the whole world. Well, Abraham didn't see much of the fulfillment of those promises in his lifetime, though, did he? Abraham had a son called Isaac, yes. Isaac had a son called Jacob, yes. Jacob had how many sons? Twelve sons. That's the twelve tribes. That's where we get the twelve tribes of Israel. Jacob has twelve sons. One of those sons is Joseph, and through Joseph's life, the story of Joseph, this family of Jacob's, they move to Egypt. And that sets the stage for the next chapter of the story. In Egypt, they're there for 400 years and they exist as slaves. They become a more numerous, more and more multiplicous people. They're a slave people and after 400 years, they cry out to God for deliverance and God raises up a deliverer named Moses. Yes, Moses comes into the story. So we're now at about Exodus, aren't we? No, we've done one book. All right, Exodus. Moses comes into the story and God says, Moses, you're going to go and speak to Pharaoh, and you're going to say, let my people go. And he does, and his brother Aaron is there, and his sister Miriam. And Moses goes and pleads to the Pharaoh on behalf of Israel. Pharaoh says, no, the plagues come upon Egypt, God's acts of judgment, one after the other after the other. And then through a miraculous series of events, God leads his people Israel out of Egypt and into, initially, just the desert. Didn't seem a lot better. But he leads them into the desert. He does this incredible act of parting the Red Sea. That's a major event in the Old Testament. Really, God's major act of redemption or salvation in the Old Testament is the exodus, is the parting of the Red Sea. And understanding that event helps you see what was coming later on in the New Testament. But God leads his people through the Red Sea, and he leads them to a mountain. Anyone know the name of the mountain? 
Mount Sinai, good, some of you are awake. Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, he enters into this covenant, like, a, like an agreement with Israel. Really, Mount Sinai is the place where God makes Israel a nation. Before that, they were a massive family. At Sinai, they become a nation, and God gives them a law that really orders their life as a nation. That's where the Ten Commandments come in, but not just ten. There's another 603 on top of that. They have a whole lot of commandments that regulate their life as a people before God. They live in this covenant relationship with God. God leads Israel through the desert. They are there for 40 years. Should have only been about 40 days, but it ends up, because of their disobedience, being about 40 years. And then eventually they enter into the land they were promised, the land of Canaan the promised land. By that stage, they're under the leadership of a new guy whose name was Joshua. Yes, Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land. We come now into the book of Joshua, and there is this great military campaign. The Israelites take possession of the land. But once the dust kind of settles on all of that, and Israel settles down in their land, what happens almost immediately is that Israel starts becoming influenced by the nations around them. They were supposed to be a unique people. Their life under God, ordered in a particular way, them worshipping Him alone. What happens is they become like the nations around them. They just want to worship the gods of the other nations, the Baals, the Asherahs. They want to be like the other peoples. They want to just be absorbed into the nations. This sometimes is described as the Canaanizing of Israel. They just become like the Canaanites. And so this starts a series of declines in Israel's history. They become more and more unfaithful to God. You have the era of the judges, which is just a cycle of Israel rebelling against God and, and crying out for forgiveness, and then rebelling against God again, crying out for forgiveness. And eventually Israel decides, they look around the nations around them, and they decide, we'd quite like a king. All these other nations, they've got kings. That's what we want. You see, all they want is to become like the other nations. And God says, you don't need a king, you've got me. They say, we really want a king. God says, okay, I'm going to give you a king. And so God wasn't part of his plan at first, but he's gracious and he's kind and he's compassionate and he's still working out his plan. And he gives Israel a king. The first king was called Saul. Yes, someone's awake down there. Saul, he was a very mixed bag, wasn't he? As a king, starts well, ends badly, like a lot of us. And after Saul comes David. Yes, one of the great, probably the most well-known king. In the Old Testament, David, by the way, wrote a lot of the Psalms. As you're reading the book of Psalms, you're reading a lot of David's poetry. Uh, he was a songwriter. He was a musician. David's son then takes the throne. His name was Solomon. Yes. Now, anyone know the next one? Solomon's son. Mm. No, no. It starts with R. Rehoboam. Yes. No one really knows. He's much more obscure. Yeah. He was bad news. One of the worst kings. Maybe, maybe not one of the... He was pretty bad. Uh, he was so bad. And part of the problem was that he listened to the advice of his university flatmates <laughs> rather than listening to God. And as a result, that's a lesson right there, isn't it? As a result, he split the kingdom in half. What was a united nation up to that point then becomes divided. It becomes split into this northern big nation, which kept the name Israel, and the southern part of the nation, which takes the name Judah. And from that point, you have then two parallel lines of kings. So when you're reading through the books like First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, you've got the northern kings and you've got the southern kings. Generally, they were bad news. As a rule of thumb, the kings just outdid each other in evil behavior and unfaithfulness and apostasy. 
to God. There's a few bright sparks. Uh, some good kings that followed God, kings like Asa, kings like Josiah. Uh, but by and large, the, these kings continued the decline of Israel and their unfaithfulness towards God. And through that time of the monarchy, God raises up these guys called prophets. And so you get books like Isaiah, uh, books like Amos, uh, these prophets like Ezekiel, who spoke often to Israel, sometimes to Judah, often to the leaders of God's people. Sometimes they'd speak to other nations, but very often to God's people. And when you think of the prophets, we often think of them like telling the future. That's only a very small part of what they did. A lot of the prophets are calling Israel back to faithfulness. In fact, a lot of the time they're going back over what is already revealed in the law and saying, come back to faithfulness, come back to Yahweh. You have drifted a long way. Come back, otherwise there will be judgment. Otherwise, the land will be taken from you. One after another, the prophets come and they call the people back and they warn the people and they talk about impending judgment, but Israel doesn't listen. Judah doesn't listen. And so, sure enough, judgment comes. And this great act of judgment in the Old Testament is called the exile. Now, there is no book called the exile, but you can piece it together from some other books that are in Scripture, like Jeremiah, uh, Esther takes place during the exile. The book of Daniel takes place during the exile. This was a time when Israel and then Judah were conquered. And they were, in the case of Judah, they were taken out of their land. And they were deported all the way to another country called Babylon. And this was a huge national crisis for Israel. You just can't overstate what a low point that was for God's people. For them, it was the loss of their land that had been promised to them by God. It was the loss of their temple because the Babylonians came and destroyed it all. As far as they were concerned, it was the loss of God. Like they thought God had left them. They thought God was kind of over here in Israel and we're not there anymore. So God must have abandoned us. And Israel goes into exile. They're in this strange foreign land of Babylon. All these strange people, strange customs, and they're trying to get used to things. This is where the book of Lamentations comes in. There's a lot of lamenting. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of grieving because Israel's been taken out of her land. This is where some of the Psalms come in and the Israelites say, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? That's not just a Boney M song. It's from the Bible. And it's the lament, it's the cry of a broken heart saying, how do we sing the songs of Zion when we're in this strange land full of people who don't follow our God? But in the midst of exile, there is hope and there is these voices of possibility and restoration. You get really significant Israelites who have roles during this time. Daniel becomes part of Nebuchadnezzar's court, a very high-ranking official. Uh, Esther becomes the queen of Persia, not, not, not a Jewish kingdom, but becomes the queen in this foreign kingdom. Uh, and you have the voices of prophets speaking of a time beyond exile, when God's going to bring about something new. Prophets like Jeremiah, who says, God's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the old one. This will be a new covenant where God's law is written on your hearts. And so you get the sense there's hope that's coming. There's something new that's coming. There's a new covenant that's coming. There's, the story's not over yet. And sure enough, 70 years after exile, the political winds change, the Persians are in power, and under King Cyrus, the Israelites are allowed back into their land. Not all of them come back, but some of them do. These waves of Judeans that come back into Jerusalem under Nehemiah, that's where the book of Nehemiah comes in. Some of them come back and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem under 
the governor Zerubbabel, they come back and they rebuild the temple of God. Over a long time, it was pretty arduous. Ezra comes into the picture here. He's a teacher of the law. He comes back to Jerusalem, leads the people in this great renewal of their commitment, renewal of the covenant before God. And so here, and we're getting close to the end of the Old Testament here, here is God's people again, living back in their land. But there is in this final stage of the Old Testament, a real sense of anticlimax. There's a real sense like we're back in the land, but God hasn't really returned to us. We've come back to the land, but where is God? You know, God's glory never filled the temple again, like it did under Solomon. Israel was still an occupied people. They still had a foreign government making the rules. They never had kings again, like the great kings of David, Solomon, and so on. They had governors. But there was a sense like God hasn't really made good on these promises yet. What about the great promises of restoration? What about the great promises of universal blessing? What about the great promises of an eternal kingdom? And so as the Old Testament closes, you are left on a note of anticipation. You're left on this note of suspense of how is God going to fulfill all these promises to Abraham? The Old Testament really ends as a story in search of an ending. And that's the close of the Old Testament. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you've got that little blank page in your Bible, that little white page. That's worth about 400 years, just so you know. There's a lot that happened in there. We can't go into it today, but there's a lot of history in that time. But then we come to the New Testament and the third chair. Second chair was a long time. This one will be a bit shorter. So what have we had so far? Ought, just the first couple of chapters of the Bible, is the way the world is, the rest of the Old Testament story. And then we come to the New Testament and we have the word can. What can now happen through Jesus? What hope can the world experience through Jesus Christ? What new life can come to us through Christ? This is a chapter of new possibilities and new hope and new life, the word can. And so the Gospels tell us the story of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the key things I want you to grab here is that when Jesus enters the story on chair three, he doesn't just drop into the story. Like the part of the reason I've told you the story so far is that you can see Jesus comes into the flow of a story. Can you see that? He didn't just parachute down to earth, die on a cross and go back to heaven. He came into the story and Jesus comes to fulfill all these promises going right back to the beginning of the story. He comes to undo what the curse of sin has done, to begin winding back that curse that's affected humanity and all of creation. He comes to fulfill the promises God made to David, that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and establish an eternal kingdom. That's why a few weeks ago we talked about the first words of Jesus' ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus really importantly comes to fulfill those promises that God made to Abraham, that through Abraham's family, Blessing would now come to all nations, all peoples. And what we realize is that that's not just going to happen through all Israelites. It's going to happen through one particular Israelite, this man, Jesus of Nazareth. He will be the one through whom God's blessing will now extend to all peoples, all nations, every tribe, every tongue under heaven. And that's why as you read the Gospels, you see a lot of Jesus' ministry is reaching not just the Jewish community, but beyond that. And you see Jesus crossing these social taboos and reaching out to people he wasn't supposed to talk to and interacting with people beyond just the chosen people of the Jews. You see him healing a Roman centurion's servant. 
You see him healing a Canaanite woman's daughter. You see him hanging out with a Samaritan woman at the well. These people, Jesus should never even have been around. He should have just stayed within the little circle of the Jewish community, but that wasn't his mission. He's thinking back, all the way back through the story. And he's showing us how now God's blessing and God's promise is not just for the Jewish people, it's for everybody. It's for this unclean woman here, it's for this ungodly man here, it's for this person here who's never even thought about God before. It's for these people who are outcasts and unclean people and sometimes immoral people and sometimes misfits and people that don't fit into any particular category. And Jesus is showing us that God's blessing is for everybody. God's salvation, God's kingdom, God's family is for everybody. The story of the Gospels builds and builds and builds and reaches its climax in the death of Jesus. If you read the Gospels, the whole story slows down about a week before Jesus dies. And we're taken through it very slowly with a lot of detail in that final week. We call it Passion Week, the week leading up to Easter. From a human perspective, the death of Jesus on the cross was a massive miscarriage of justice. It was a sham trial, these bogus charges. Jesus should never have been executed. But from God's perspective, we see a different story. We see how this was the plan all along and how Jesus was the answer to the problem the world has experienced going all the way back to the garden. That on the cross, Jesus doesn't just die as one man hanging on a Roman cross but he takes upon himself all the brokenness of the world. He takes upon himself on the cross everything that has gone wrong with the world since Genesis 3. All the brokenness of humanity, all of our sin, the brokenness of creation, all of Israel's rebellion, sin against God, all of it, your sin, my sin, Jesus carries it all on the cross and he dies for it. He dies to pay the debt you and I deserved to pay. He dies the death. You and I deserve to die. It should have been you and it should have been me hanging on that cross. That's what we deserve, but thank God it was Jesus. The one person who never deserved it hung there bleeding and dying for us to bridge that chasm between God our Father and us broken, lost, sinful people. That's what the cross accomplished. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Then three days later, Jesus rises from the dead showing that he truly was exactly who he said he was, the Son of God. And as Jesus walks out of the tomb that morning, it's not just one man, it's this whole future. It's God's new kingdom coming about on earth as it is in heaven. It's God's new creation beginning to take shape in the world. It's the beginnings of these new possibilities for us being restored in relationship with God and us being restored in relationship with one another. That's why the chair is called can. Because through Jesus, we are shown what now can be possible. That we can be reconciled to God and we can be reconciled to one another. That can happen now only because Jesus has lived, died, and risen again. As the story continues, we're still on the third chair. Jesus ascends to heaven 40 days after being raised from the dead. The disciples are then hanging around, not sure what to do. They're just kind of hanging out there in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit comes. We're now into the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. God sends the Holy Spirit. This is where the Holy Spirit, in a sense, enters the story. But of course, if you've been reading up to this point, you know the Spirit is there right at the beginning. 
right back in the beginning, the Holy Spirit is there hovering over the waters of creation. So don't think the Spirit only shows up in the New Testament. But in the New Testament now, the followers of Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit in a new way, in a fresh way, in an abiding and permanent way. All those who follow Jesus now filled, and that happens through the day of Pentecost, with the great rushing wind, the tongues of fire that come upon the disciples. Maybe you can hear a connection there all the way back to the Tower of Babel. The languages that scatter now become the languages that gather and redeem through the Spirit. The Spirit is given, and very quickly, we have the birth of the church. Acts chapter 2. These people now filled with the Spirit, followers of Jesus, they get baptized, and you have instant church. Just like that. 3,000 people baptized on the day of Pentecost, probably double that, including women and children, and the church is born. The church is the community of those who love and follow Jesus, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and who gather in their name. And the church is doing... In the book of Acts, very similar things to what we're doing today. They don't sing the same songs, I know, but they gather to worship. They gather to hear the teaching of the apostles, just as we gather to hear God's word. They take the Lord's Supper, just as we do. They probably had better bread and they had wine, but you know, we're doing the same thing. They gather to be in fellowship and they gather to be on mission with God. From the very beginning, the church has always had a mission. It wasn't just a bunch of people that sat in a room gathering together. It's on mission. The book of Acts, you read the Acts, it's this church on fire. It's this church that's got a heart for the gospel, and it's moving out, and it's got good news to share because Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, Jesus is coming again, and people are going and telling other people about this. And so the church is spreading. Sometimes it's spreading through persecution, but it's spreading. And you have through Acts some real pioneers of the church taking that message out, particularly the apostle Paul big part of Acts is the journeys of Paul. And Paul, although he was a Jewish man, he's given this job to go to the non-Jewish world and preach to them about Jesus, the Gentile world, the people that Paul used to hate. Now he takes the message to the Gentiles. And so Paul moves out beyond just Israel. And if you've ever looked at those maps at the back of your Bible, you know those ones, the maps? It's very handy. Paul had those maps, so he knew where to go. So he takes these trips around Turkey he takes a little trip around Greece. He takes a trip through Italy, gets to Rome. He probably got as far as Spain, some people think. And so Paul is taking this good news of Jesus, and he's moving out, and he's telling new people, and along the way, churches are planted. And then Paul keeps corresponding with them. A lot of the books in your New Testament are letters that were written by Paul and others to Christians and to churches in the first century, encouraging them and helping them. And sometimes telling them off when they were going down the wrong track. But it's helping to get these churches going and trying to keep them on a path as they walk and follow Jesus. Now, by the end of the first century, the Bible itself was written. But what I want you to see is that the story didn't finish there. The story that the Bible tells keeps on going. People kept taking the good news and they kept going further and further and further. And others came. There's a second generation and a third generation and a fourth generation. And that story continues down through the centuries as the church, followers of Jesus, have continued to take the good news about Jesus and continue to take the love of Jesus to a broken world, a hurting world, a needy world. This is where we come into the story. We are part of the same story today. Yes, we are 2,000 years on from Jesus, but we're part of the same story. And those of us gathering here in a church in New Zealand, 
We can think back to someone like Samuel Marsden, who first preached the gospel in New Zealand, 1814, up in Oihi Bay, first brought the gospel to New Zealand. And since that time, men and women of faith, Māori and Pākehā, have preached the good news of Jesus in this land and have embodied the love of Jesus in this land. And the kingdom of God has emerged and churches have sprung up in this land and we here now gather as Shaw Community Church in the 21st century carrying on that same mission as people who love and follow Jesus looking around us and saying how can we be part of that same story today we are still God's image bearers we're still children of Abraham by faith we're followers of Jesus and we're outworking that same story in our own day and our age showing and sharing the love of Jesus now there's one more chair, isn't there? And the best is yet to come. I'll, I'll explain this one quickly. But this is the chair that still sits out there in the future because the Bible also tells the story of what will be. We've had ought, we've had is, we've had what can be through Jesus. And now Scripture points us towards what one day will be. What we know, we don't have all the details. I know some of you think you know exactly when Jesus is going to return. We don't know exactly when that's going to be, but the Bible does, does tell us there will be a day when Jesus comes back and he is back with us here on earth. Just as he was 2,000 years ago, he will be present again with us. One day there will be a great judgment of all people and those who have entrusted their lives to Jesus through faith will be ushered into God's eternal kingdom. Sometimes when we think about that future, that God's got in store for us. We think of it as this thing where we're going to be kind of zapped off to some other place called heaven. Like we're going to be kind of teleported off to some distant realm and we're going to be sitting around on clouds with halos in angel costumes, singing old hymns forever and ever and ever. And people are like, man, if that's heaven, you know, what's the alternative? But that is not the biblical picture of what heaven is going to be like. In fact, you get right to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, 22. What John sees is not a whole lot of Christians being taken from earth to heaven. What he sees is the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven to earth. And the voice from the throne saying, now God's dwelling place is among his people. The movement, the final movement at the end of the biblical story is not from earth to heaven. It is from heaven to earth. And the picture that we get is that what God one day will do is not take us to some far-off realm. He will bring heaven about right here. That this world, even this physical earth, will be renewed. It will be redeemed. It will be resurrected. And it will be brought to the destiny that God always intended to bring it to right back in the very beginning. That is why Romans 8 says creation is groaning for its liberation. One day it will be set free. And we're not going to be resurrected apart from creation. We're going to be resurrected along with creation. And we will live right here in this renewed and redeemed and recreated world. The Bible calls it the new heavens and the new earth. We could just as easily say the renewed heavens and the renewed earth. But it's not going to be like going back to the Garden of Eden. Don't think about it like, well, we're just going to finally be back in the Garden of Eden. No, we don't want to go back. To, I mean, there was, the serpent was back there in the garden. There was sin back there in the garden. No, we're going on to the new creation where there's not even the possibility of sin. But there will just be life and joy and peace and righteousness in the presence of God. 
And finally, we will be brought to the fullness of what God created us to be as those made in his image. Perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with ourselves, our hearts and minds no, no longer troubled and darkened, perfect relationship with one another, and perfect relationship with creation itself, living in harmony with the earth. That's a picture the Bible calls shalom, or peace, this universal wholeness and flourishing and delight. And as you get right to the end of the biblical story, there are some similarities with the beginning. There is a garden, but now it's a garden city. It's this renewed and recreated world where we live together with God and one another on into eternity. And so this is the story from ought, how things ought to be, through to is, the way the world is, through to can, and what can now happen through Jesus, all the way through to what will be one day. And here's what I want to encourage you as we finish. As you, and I hope that you do, take some time to read this book, and when you're buried in some obscure verse in Leviticus, or in Galatians, or, heaven forbid, in Revelation, that's actually a wonderful book, I hope that maybe partly through today, other things, that you might be able to connect what you're reading to a much bigger story. That you would see that verse, that story, that passage, not just in isolation, but see how it's connected to this huge, big, grand story of what God is doing. And even more than that, that you would choose to make this your story because it is personal. It's not just something that happened out there. This is our story. It's your story. It's my story. So may we be people who live deeply in the biblical story. May we be a church that knows the story, that teaches it to our kids and the next generation. And may we be people who live out of this story and participate in what God is doing, carrying this story forward. May that be who we are. May that be our identity. May that be our story for God's glory. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this great story and we thank you for the Bible in which it is contained. Lord, as we just think about this book, as I hold this book in my hands, I'm so aware of how precious it is, just how beautifully put together the story is, God, how meaningful and how integrated all these little parts of the story are. Father, I pray that you would help us to find our place in this story. Lord, as those who live between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, God, we pray that you would show us how we can receive your love and then reflect your love to others around us who desperately need to hear it and see it in us. Lord, as we live out our days, as we go about our lives, just make us mindful of this big story that's going on. Lift up our eyes, God, to see it, to see how it all fits together. Keep reminding us, Father, there is so much more going on than just our moment in time. We are part of this huge story that you are writing, and we thank you, Jesus, that you are right at the very center of it all. We love you, God, and we thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for your spirit who sustains and leads us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. 
For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.